Hi, my name is Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and here's all the key news in the world of battery materials this month. Welcome to June's edition of Recharge, the podcast by Battery Materials Review. I'm pleased to be joined once again by Cormac O'Lara, MD of Electrios Energy. Welcome again, Cormac. Thanks, Matt, for having me back. Great. And uh, well, a fair amount to talk about this month. It's been a, a, a very yeah. interesting month. Let's kick off, obviously, a, a little bit of a delay on the data, but um, pretty significant carnage in Chinese EV sales in April because of the lockdowns, but a little bit of a bounce back in, in May and into the first half of June. What are you seeing on that? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, quite interesting. The you know, devastated during April uh, reliefs. We went from close to 400,000 sales down to uh, just over 200,000 NEV sales. China still produced 2 million NEVs this year. That's including PHEVs, fuel cell cars, obviously, which are in the hundreds, and uh, battery electric vehicles and commercial vehicles. It was very interesting, though, in April, because there were very clear winners and losers. One assumes because of the location of their manufacturing. So, for instance, BYD continued to have a very high market share, where, where, of course, Tesla, which is in Shanghai, got its backside handed to it, basically. Is that sort of bouncing back over the rest of the year now that Zoom's production? Uh, Well, I think it's a very good point you're making about location. Tesla, right bank centers, Shanghai, terrible place to be during COVID breakouts, right? Where if you're recreated in a region like Guangzhou or outside, nobody's in the middle of Shenzhen, right? And even Shenzhen didn't really have that great lockdown. It just shows you that Great location, Shanghai, great location. But when uh, anything, events such as COVID could happen, then uh, you're really exposed to uh, the delivery issues. First of all, getting the cars off, you got employees issues getting into the factory, plus you got the lockdown. And if you're like BYD, where you're more uh, located in more uh, rural areas, then you're a little bit more insulated. That obviously benefited them. Okay. But certainly, you know, signs that things are picking up, well, picked up in May. We've had some of the the preliminary data and also in the first half of June, the the preliminary data pointing to quite a nice reacceleration, even though the Chinese government has sort of stimulated in the ICE space. It looks like that's sort of translated into stronger EV sales as well. All the strong EV sales uh, up to 24%, above 24% for most of the or above 20% for most of the year, which is uh, you know far ahead of the rest of the world, but might be what we're looking. You know, I you know I was reading in the BMR that some analysts have forecasts of 24, 25% penetration rate of sales in 2025. Where we're already seeing those numbers in China right now, and in China is usually just slightly ahead of what is going to happen, especially in Europe and uh, Europe. Obviously, we've seen great sales. But it gives an idea we might arrive at this 24, 25% penetration rate a lot sooner than expected. That's one of the sort of key issues. And I, I guess the other key issue is where we go with materials availability and whether that's going to pull or pull the numbers back in, in the second half of the year, given that it takes some time for material to, to flow through the supply chain. So, I mean, lithium prices have been pretty flat over the yeah. last 
two or three months, they came back a little bit, like about three or four percent or something. But they've been pretty flat apart from that. And given that EV production has been has been down, one does wonder if you know we might move into another squeeze in the second half of the year. And that would be very interesting given that various bold bracket banks are suggesting that the um, lithium price is going to come down by 50 to 70% from these levels. It's been flat, as you said, flat on the CAM material costs, flat on the lithium chemical costs also, you know, 470,000 RMB per ton compared to 500,000 only uh, eight weeks ago or so, six weeks ago. So yeah, relatively flat, quiet. But I've been inundated with uh, requests from Chinese converters looking for spodumene, lithium carbonate, and they'll take all you can get. Uh, so still a bit of a, uh, a crunch going on, even though prices are, are, are gone flat. As you said, that's probably due to uh, the issues that occurred in the um, EV market during April. But on the other hand, uh, there seems to be a little bit extra nickel around available for exports. Gives you an idea of the yeah, situation. We that in the April numbers as well. You know, certainly a decline in nickel sulfate imports, certainly a decline in in refined nickel imports. Some of that's a a sort of technical issue insofar as there was a a strike in Ontario last year, which impacted um, sort of nickel briquette production, which has been used a lot for nickel sulfate. And obviously that, that asset is now back at work. So there's, there's not so much of a demand for refined nickel to sulfatize it. Yes, it's very interesting. I mean, a number of commentators are suggesting that there's more material coming out of Indonesia than we were expecting. It's going to be very interesting to see where that goes in the, in the, in the rest of the year, I think. Nickel prices have been flat also for, you know, they didn't experience the same kind of... Uh increases we saw with the... Uh, well, they had that nice spike in there. But oh, was- other, other than, yeah. Well, that was, I'm talking about China. We didn't have such a spike. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's correct, actually. I mean, the Shanghai Metal Exchange, the nickel price didn't didn't spike. It just, you know, went up. It's come off. It's been quite volatile on the Shanghai Metal Exchange, I believe. But I think that's that's an important point to make because I think a lot of people look at the sort of Western world prices and go, well, you know, that's the price. But um, for, for China, it's the Shanghai Metal Exchange that's the primary price, and that hasn't really moved as much as the LME price at all. Yeah, but it's still above um, what we'd say the what the average was. It was like usually about somewhere between thirty two thousand to thirty seven thousand RMB. I think it's like forty five the last time I checked. So still a bit up, but uh, nothing like uh, what you saw on the LME, of course. Yeah. 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 Okay. Let's uh, move on then. So, I, I mean, talking about the Chinese EV sector, interesting announcement out of BYD, which has launched uh, the SEAL electric vehicle. First commercial application of cell-to-body technology. So ahead of Tesla, which has obviously been talking about cell-to-chassis technology for a little while, it looks like BYD may have, may have stolen a march on them. Well, it's unclear. It's okay. You know, it's Tesla's Model Y is available for employees, right? With the 4680. I think that is the shelter chassis and might be available for order outside, but apparently it's available for, for employees. Well, BYD is a car company after all, and they have the expertise to integrate such a, an innovation. But, uh, you know, CATL is not a car company, so to speak, who also have developed uh, the shelter chassis. 
which mm. is a slight variant, I guess, on the self to body. Or, or else it's just a some sort of alphabetical error. I'm not sure, but it's self to body versus self to chassis. Yeah. Uh, but uh, one one letter in front. <laughs> yeah, but they you know, again, they're going with the blade battery on that. The suitable dimensions, of course, uh, it perfectly integrates with that seal body. There's a, a various uh, sizes you get the blade battery, but there's the standard. I think that's what they're going with. And, and then uh, about these hexagonal sort of shapes, which are uh, going to be very strong in terms of the structure of the overall vehicle, I think. Yeah, that is, you know, it's uh, something we've seen before, right? Um, but uh, yeah, it's uh, lightweight, so, you know, less metal required. Might uh, suggest that it's, uh, the structural integrity of the blade battery on its own is not quite enough to perform to the level you would expect uh, is expected. But yeah, yeah it's an innovation, uh, lightweighting, of course, you have to lower the weight. Still comes in a kind of a, a traditional battery pack style. It comes with a tray and it comes with, um, in, in a tray format, I mean, with, with, a, with a lid. And then um, one of the issues uh, I wasn't aware at the time is that as you drive the car, the floor of the car is going to heat up, right? Uncomfortable for the, uh, the passengers. Or else, you know, some people pay to get their feet warm, so maybe. But uh, they have had a few thermal issues where um, they have to draw away the, or well, yeah, drawing away heat anyway, usually in battery packs, but uh, just uh, won't be noticeable to the uh, passengers. And, and what about the energy density? Do we have to talk now about vehicle energy density rather than pack energy density? I, How does that yeah. compete on the seal? I mean, obviously, if you're if you're cutting away the elements of the pack. Presumably, you are getting a higher energy density on your product. You know, often uh, you get a pack energy density, but sometimes you look at the car weight too and try and like do ballpark figures. What's the actual energy density of this machine with all components included, right? Uh, but um, yet to see a figure known as vehicle energy density. But um, once the pack is, becomes part of the vehicle, maybe you will see numbers like that. But uh, you know, there's a big drop off between cell energy density, pack energy density, and, and, and by the time you get to EV energy density, then I, I think the number will be quite low and, and unimpressive. Okay, okay. Um, so BYD seal, not really, I mean, it's it's a full-size battery as well, isn't it? It's not a mini EV or anything. It's a full-size sort of... Uh, well, it's on their e-platform, right? The uh, 3.0, so... They obviously have a, a number of uh, models that they can build on that. But the, inherently, the BYD blade battery is uh, quite a large cell. So it would be almost the length of a, a, a mini EV. So, uh, yeah. so that would so be real structural integrity there. It's not, a, it's not a sort of low-cost mini EV. It's a sort of mid-tier sort of sedan. I think it's a, um, it can also be in a crossover format as well, I believe. They have... Yeah. Well, they have the BYD Dolphin Seal and uh, some other aquamarine um, derivations of that. I'm sure there'll be Orca coming. <laughs> okay, well, that's, uh, that's something to look forward to. And I guess the other news in, in May was that Ford is potentially looking to adopt the LFP battery for entry-level models. That's, that's quite a big move, isn't it? I think it's obviously the theme of the industry. And we had the Stone Age, the Bronze Age, the Iron Age, and the Iron Phosphate Age now. <laughs> I, uh, I think it's yeah. very, you know, interesting. We, you know, I, I still have this conversation a lot with people in the US and to, to a lesser extent Europe 
how important LFP is in China. I think there is this lack of understanding of the fact that LFP is, what, 60% of vehicles in China. There is still very much a perception in the Western world that LFP is for golf buggies and, you know, little mini EVs. And it's not, you know, it genuinely is a a bulge bracket chemistry and, and has applications in proper vehicles. And, you know, we've obviously seen Tesla go with LFP and its entry level models. And now for Ford to be looking at LFP, you know, we know that Volkswagen is planning to bring in LFP and its entry level models from 24, 25 and other, you know, major OEMs. So it's really important for LFP. And of course, from for the lithium industry, of course, it's very important as well, because, you know, you're talking about lithium carbonate used in LFP rather than lithium hydroxide. So, you know, the more sort of mass market vehicles we see going into LFP, the, the, you know, the more lithium carbonate demand that we're going to be looking for. Yeah, yeah, it actually requires a little bit more lithium than uh, NMC counterpart. Uh, So, you know, there's a few things to weigh up. But the LFP, for example, if you can you name any LFP cam producer where like the NMC, Chinese NMC cam producers are a bit more of a household name, right? Shanshan, Beijing A-Spring. You know, there's obviously a number of others, but nobody can name any LFP cam producers, right? Uh, so there's very little understanding in the industry and it, it had to scale up quite quickly uh, yeah. to meet demand. Most of the battery manufacturing announcements in China now are LFP. I mean, like Goshen, for example, has uh, just opened the factory recently, CATL, obviously, and the cam producers are, are also, most of the chemical factory announcements are, are LFP, not so much in the um, ternary cathode material side. So LFP was the bus battery until quite recently. It can do the job, you know, it can get you four or 500 kilometers. So if you need more than that. I think, you know, four or 500 kilometers is, is probably enough for most consumers in the current markets with the current technology. So, you know, even in a, in a mini EV, if it can do 100, 200 kilometers, that's enough for most city slash suburban drivers that's as as long as you want to sit in a mini ev (laughs) (laughs) that's up to you (laughs) so i i think you know that the very important that we understand that lfp is a is a real chemistry in the western world the question about cam producers is interesting because i know a number of sort of experimental cam producers in europe who are looking at lfp but uh, you're, you're quite right i don't know very many existing lfp can producers outside some whose whose names I'm unable to pronounce in China. Dianonic, for example, supply uh, CATL and BYD. They're down in Shenzhen or Guangzhou area, Guangdong area. Um, big, there's a couple, there's a big three, Hunan, Yunnan, there's another one. Uh, big three supply about 60% of the market. And that has changed. The number one producer this year wasn't even in the top 10 last year. So it's very dynamic. They're all partnerships. Uh, there's very few pure play, really, uh, partner, except for Dynamic Hour, actually. Uh, pure play. Uh, so partnerships with CATL or BYD or uh, Goshen, or some, some of the big uh, LFP battery producers. Um, and, and, and what about the sort of um, electrolyte and the separator side in, in LFP? I mean, I understand that one of the big sort of factors that was slowing down the market was the electrolyte and things like vinyl carbonate and things like that. Is that sort of moving away now as a bottleneck? Are we seeing capacity expansions in that side of things? 
well, LIFPF6 was the uh, big issue uh, that is kind of stabilized. Yeah, the price price gone down on that. Uh, VC, I don't believe is stabilized. Still a bit of an issue on, um, on the supply side. But uh, VC is more seen like an additive. So for ternary materials where you got uh, you want to form nice SEI layers and stuff, it's slightly different in LFP circumstances where you'd need you can formulate uh, different electrolytes that you know work within the electrochemical voltage window of LFP, which is lower than NMC. Depending on your use, you know LFP has some sort of uh, some low temperature issue, so you tailor the electrolyte differently. So it uses different. It has the same primary electrolyte, LiPF6, ethylene carbonate, dimethyl carbonate, um, but the additives would be slightly different. And you might not be as worried about the SEI uh, issues um, uh, at high, high voltages as you would with NMC. But you know, it's a few, you got to tailor the cells uh, depending on, on the use. Uh, and there's different cells. The LFP cell for energy storage is different to the LFP cell for electric vehicles. Okay. Okay. That's interesting. And I mean, just getting on to sort of one, one of the very interesting sort of drivers at the moment, certainly, um, you know, in the Western world, possibly to a lesser extent in China, which is inflation and inflationary factors flowing through the industry. I mean, obviously in China, we had the raw material price inflation. We had that flurry of battery of cell producer price increases at the end of last year. Then we had another flurry at the beginning of this year. Then we had the, the EV producers raising their prices. What are you seeing now? What do you think for the rest of the year? Obviously, lithium prices have, uh, have been pretty flat. Some sort of ternary raw material prices are falling. Uh, graphite prices are pretty consistent. Is there pressure on the supply chain in China or, or is it? Um, still pressure on the EV um startup so to speak uh mm-hmm. the neos of the world uh, in china i mean uh they've had they've continued their uh, price increases they're just suffering in all aspects of the supply chain even cells and there's you know they were originally tied to uh, single cell suppliers but now broadening their uh, uh like every other ev company to incorporate more uh, wider broad range of uh, cell suppliers and that might help them ease their costs and secure um cells because uh it's that really affects, uh, you know, they, their business is built on output per month, how many vehicles you're getting out of the factory, and that will determine how quickly you can scale and how big your investment will be. So it, it's really critical for them to secure secure materials, but also they got to keep the price competitive with larger companies like uh, Tesla Model 3. And tough times for those guys, for sure. Yeah, and I guess a lot of these producers who are just starting up production, I mean, for instance, Rivian, we've seen a lot of problems with these guys. A lot of EV producers who, who started production last year went into quite a, a stable raw material price environment. But for somebody like Rivian starting up at the moment, I think it's a real struggle uh, when you're running pretty small production runs, but your raw yep. material prices are going through the roof and you don't have the economies of scale that the big producers have got. I think that's a real issue for them. They're going to have to get to the back of the queue. So depending, as you said, the volume of production depends whether you can get sales or not. If you're not a big producer and not big order, then you will be at the bottom of the queue. Yeah. And I think for Chinese cells. That's, um, that's going to be very important going forward. I mean, obviously, we talked about the lithium price being static, which is the spot lithium price. But one of the things that is very, very important that we're seeing at the moment is a lot of large lithium producers are renegotiating their lithium contracts with large buyers up. 
So, for instance, in the first quarter reporting from the US brine producers, we saw all of them renegotiating prices up with existing customers. And in fact, we've seen Albemarle increase its profit forecast twice already this year um, because they've been renegotiating price contracts upwards. And, you know, it's going to be quite an interesting question how long that takes to, to flow through the supply chain. You know, we monitor the realized prices, the realized import prices for, for instance, lithium carbonate coming into Asia. And um, the Chinese prices have, have gone up in the last couple of months coming in from Chile. The Japanese prices have gone up um, and even the Korean prices have gone up, but they're still lagging a lot. So that implies there's still quite significant tonnages locked up into Korea on, on very low lithium prices. So the question is how long it takes to, to hit the cost line for a lot of these cell producers. It'd be interesting to see, but like if you take a sample, uh, BYD, you know, they uh, renegotiated their cell contracts uh, also to month to month because that's how wild the, uh, the carbonate prices were. So that happened pretty quick in China. Uh, I'm not sure about for uh, uh, Korea and Japan, but um, China was directly, because it's a spot market, right? It was directly exposed to uh, these prices. But the long-term yeah, I mean, contracts... I, I think Korea and Japan, there's a much higher exposure to, to long-term contracts. Now, I think that a lot of these have now been renegotiated, but there clearly are still some existing on long-term contracts. And I think... Uh, a lot of the lithium producers have been sitting down and explaining the birds and the bees to their clients in terms of the fact that if you want to keep sourcing lithium from us after this existing volume contract expires, yeah. you have to be a bit more proactive in terms of what price you're going to take. So that must well, have been some quite interesting conversations going well, on. Well, yeah, if you remember before all this started, if you did a lithium operation, you had to go get an offtake. You had to find a customer. And your dream come true is if you could get one of the big three from Korea or a Japanese company to agree to either offtake or, or long-term agreement for uh, up-and-coming uh, lithium projects, not the majors, but it was uh, it was kind of a badge of honor. Uh, and they would do anything to get uh, get these deals with the big battery manufacturers. But now, the as you just said, the, the roles are reversed. Now... It's the uh, lithium producers who are dictating uh, the contracts, whereas yeah. before it was the uh, battery makers. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's, you know, it's a very interesting sort of reversal in the industry. And, uh, you know, I, I would say to, to any auto, auto producers or cell producers out there who are listening to that and, and don't like that, then they should apply their balance sheets to finance new lithium projects. Because at the moment, the industry is so tight in terms of raw material that yes the the raw material producers can um can dictate terms and, and that's not going to improve unless uh you know we see a material increase in raw material supply so anyway that is the industry we live in you know it's very interesting that that lithium prices etc are staying at very elevated levels and for me that's not really being reflected in valuations of of equities at the moment but um Moving swiftly on, BMW switching to cylindrical batteries, quite a big move. Did they say what chemistry it was? Well, switching to, they said 4680, so I assume it's um, turnering. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, a lot of announcements for cylindrical. 
are you aware of any LFP cylindrical uh, cells out there? I'm not. Are you? I've heard whisperings, but I, I haven't actually sort of seen anybody sort of in production on an LFP cylindrical cell. Yeah, yeah, well, you can you can get them, but uh, not for EV applications. But, um, you know, it's just interesting. So, yeah, basically cylindrical means ternary and MC type cells. So as being, uh, I think uh, some of the other battery companies are also announcing, everybody basically throwing their hat in the ring for cylindrical cell. So it kind of goes against the movement towards LFP in that announcement because it's there's a technical difficulty of making LFP cylindrical cells. And that's why they came out predominantly in the prismatic form. So, um, uh, uh, and there's ways around it, but it's uh, technically a little bit more difficult. So BMW's always been focused more towards the premium vehicles. I mean, there aren't, there aren't any mass market BMWs out there. So it's perhaps not a surprise that they would go for a, a ternary sort of chemistry. There's an interesting, interesting data point that prismatic sells something like a 53, rose from a 53% market share in 2021 to a 64% market share in the first quarter of 2022. And that's primarily off, you know, the growth of an LFP. And obviously pouch cell share is falling away. And then cylindrical is taking share effectively from pouch cells. Yeah, that's 21,700. Yeah. LG are making the 21700 as well as the uh, pouch cells. Oh. Historically, the um, Koreans are pouch cell producers, right? That's what their SK innovations still are. That's their, that's their tech, right? But obviously, depending on where you want to go, uh, I don't think pouch cells are going to give you any much uh, structural stability. For example, if you want to go to um, uh, some sort of integration, such as the Celta body and BYD that you mentioned earlier. It's interesting. Cylindrical, we're on the way out. After 18650, you know, it served its time. And then uh, LFP came in with the prismatic, which is, you know, developed. And then you got the blade. So it was time for the LFP. But um, the cylindrical were doing a real a resurgence. Interesting to see the data, though, on these large cylindrical cells, right? There's but potential that's issues. The resurgence is off the back of the 4680, isn't it? A larger format. So, yeah, no, nobody was talking about it beforehand. Yeah. Uh, so now there's different versions of that cell different dimensions as as elon said in the 2020 and the 2020 uh, battery day that you know he presented a curve and he showed the savings and the energy density and the sweet spot was at 4680 but other companies are coming up at slightly different dimensions maybe they found another sweet spot it's a large cell uh, and there's still concerns about how to get the heat out of these uh, large cells so uh, is that something to do with sort of eliminating the tabs that is taps, but it's still uh, still could be there's still going to be you know a lot of heat in, in in that cell, but control issues too. So you have large cells instead of small cells. Maybe you got one issue with one small cell, you can disconnect from the whole pack. You got larger cells, you got a little bit more opportunity if that cell fails. So you lose one cell in, a, in an old 1860, 3000 cells in a, in the old Tesla Model S. It's not going to make a difference to your your energy density of the pack, right? But you lose one big 4680. You're going, you're going back for a new, a new battery pack. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay. So uh, nobody's actually in production on a 4680. I think yes, uh, I several Chinese companies have produced something similar, uh, Seaback. There's no EV in production on a 4680. Just that Model X or Model Y, sorry, um, that uh, apparently uh, is available to Tesla employees in Texas. I've just read that recently, so I'm not sure if there's any rolling off the court. But we, you know, we saw on the open day in Berlin, we saw 
what it's going to look like. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's one to keep an eye on, I guess. Um, yeah. And then um, you said uh, some news from NEO that's uh, breaking in June. NEO, uh, like every other uh, EV company, want to, uh, you know, not be self-reliant and, uh, and they're interested in uh, building their own cells. So that's in development. They're, they're building a massive pilot line, an R&D facility. They, they're going to work on, um, you know, so, you know, uh, sourcing cells from third parties is fine, but maybe, you know, in your requirements and fast charging, you know, you need to tailor the cell a bit more specific for your own needs. So if you're going premium market, maybe off the shelf, third party um, cells won't, won't really give you the uh, um, extra um, advantage over your competitors. So I can see why you'd want to do something like that, but they're going for it. Theme we're seeing already with GM and Ultimum, obviously it's the LG partnership, but um, Volkswagen. Uh, so, uh, but depends on your size. Could work for Volkswagen. If you're a EV startup, it sure. could be the end of your business or it could, could you know, it's a, it make you. <laughs> yeah. it could make or break you. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, and then very quickly, just touching on sort of energy storage, uh, just for a couple of minutes, a report out of S&P uh, noting that seeing very strong growth in solar and storage, Obviously, it sort of petered out in a couple of months this year because of the um, uh, trade issues. But now President Biden has uh, given a two-year holiday for for some of these solar panel producers. I think a rejigged focus on solar and storage, which is a huge market with huge potential. Huge market, really grown over the last two years. Obviously, these issues with the tariffs and and trade issues really affected the market in, in the US. This is. You know, the industry really has taken off in the US. It's kind of leading the way, uh, mm. sort of for storage, uh, big in California, obviously. Um, but, you know, uh, it's very hard to, these got to be cost competitive. And these uh, these installations are, it's a very fine price point to whether to develop, to invest in. And with the extra uh, tariffs on uh, imported solar modules, plus energy storage units, uh, was making it real tough for these developers. So I think, so uh, it's a good thing for the industry, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I mean, the, you know, the number of these uh, projects that uh, we were hearing of were getting delayed because they couldn't source the panels. That's not where we want to be. It's important that these projects go ahead, so we can push forward with the energy transition. But I, yeah. I mean, for me, solar and storage potentially from a from a B B S S point of view has got a faster growth rate than EVs in terms of demand potential, obviously starting from a much lower base, potentially a very, very exciting market. And, uh, you know, if you stick long duration in there as well, non-lithium ion chemistries, there's a huge, huge potential in the market, I think. There's a massive appetite for it. The government are behind it. Long uh, duration storage is a little bit up in the air. And, you know, there's 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 a finite price point four to eight hours where lithium ion cells are cost competitive, but then there's you know, the question other is issues. how long they will continue to be cost competitive for if, uh, if lithium prices and uh, continue rising. So well, they went from two hours to four hours and about two years ago, then it was, I think the guys at Fluence were saying eight hours is still cost competitive. It's pretty long storage just under the, I think greater than 10 hours is a lot of term, long-term just, uh, duration. But I think, uh, 
you know, it's, it's, it's the price that defines uh, whether it's, uh, it's suitable for which uh, application. So, um, yeah. And I think the real problem with the um, ESS market is not the fact that price, the raw material price is going up. It's the fact that raw material prices are volatile. And, you know, in a market where you're looking at a solution of, you know, 15 to 20 years, the banks that are financing these deals don't like the volatility of the raw material prices. So, you know, if they were steadily going up over time, it wouldn't be an issue. It's the, the, the problem is the volatility of the raw material prices that's causing issues. Yeah, these projects are dependent on fractions of a cent. So that is a real issue, the volatility uh, for sure. But there is a, it's a price point. You can get it at that price for that installation. But the, the installations there now used to be quite small, right? Five megawatt hours, 20 megawatt hours was big. Now you're getting a couple of hundred megawatt hours. Now you got gigawatt hour projects announced. It's a lot of cells. I'm not sure you're going to get a stable price on a couple of gigawatt hours worth of cells. Plus you can't source them at the moment. We're seeing uh, energy storage integrators forming partnerships with battery companies. I think uh, you hadn't been more. You had Powen and uh, Freyer, for example. Yeah. There was an offtake of uh, over four gigawatt hours or something that was uh, quite large. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I think that's the way the way of things to come in the ESS space because they've just got to be able to compete. And at the moment, it's a real struggle to source cells when you're competing with the the EV industry, which uh, I'm not going to say they're paying more because they're not they're not paying more for cells, but um, you know, they, they, it's just a little bit more, how would you say, sexy? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say the same word. It's sexier okay. industry. It dwarfs uh, all future projections. It's just dwarfs. And, you know, the uh, the energy storage industry is quite bullish and they're on their forecasts because you can it's direct replacement. You can see where, where they're going, but uh, it's still dwarfed by what might be the uh, EV forecast in the future. Yeah. Uh, if that doesn't fall off, then... I think energy storage will still take a lot of batteries. But the, the energy storage market would, might in 2025 or so might be the same size as the total EV battery market last year, for example, which is yeah. you know still baby steps. Yeah, so it's coming off a lower base. But, yeah. um, and, you know, by, you know, even 2035, 2040, it'll be smaller than the EV market, but it'll still be a, a, a sizable market in its own right. So it just needs to be able to compete. Okay. Yeah, yeah. We will say uh, thanks very much to uh, Cormac there. You can catch his monthly update on LinkedIn and on his website. And we look forward to talking to you next month. Yeah, I look forward to Matt. Talk to you next month. Thanks very much. So that brings us to the end of our June podcast. You can get more detail on any of the topics we've discussed in the latest issue of Battery Materials Review, which you can find at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. I'm Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and this has been Recharge. Thanks for listening.